Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Wine-Banks, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. You might have seen that we tweeted some photos of ourselves wearing our pale blue women's t-shirt, which is, of course, available at politicon.com slash merch. Get yours now. We love them. Today, we'll be talking about the overturning of the federal mask mandate, the possibility of Marjorie Taylor Greene being bumped off the ballot for her role in the insurrection, and we will rethink the 9 to 5 workday for lawyers as we begin to return to the office. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to all that, coming up this Friday... May 1st, is something called Law Day. And it's really important to me and the other sisters because it's meant to underscore the importance of the rule of law. You know, we talk a lot about laws and the application of laws and what's illegal and what's not. But I think a lot of times um, Americans don't fully understand what the rule of law is and the importance of the rule of law. And Law Day has been for decades a moment to uh, consider that. It was started by the American Bar Association back in 1957. And it's meant to give an opportunity for everyone, not just lawyers, to understand how the law and the legal process protects our society, protects our liberty, protects justice and our democracy. And I think right now, especially given what's been going on for the past several years, it's really important to remember that. I am not a member of the ABA because as a journalist, um, we generally don't belong to groups like that. uh, And I no longer practice law. But I was on an advisory commission for the ABA, uh, which brought in journalists and other people to talk about ways to better inform the public about the rule of law. I think that is something that is so important. It's very close to my heart. I know it's close to all of your hearts too, Joyce. Talk about how Law Day is a big hit in your household. So, you know, my husband is a judge. My father-in-law was a judge. Hence, Law Day sort of um, is a big celebration around here. What I've always done and something that I really miss, I haven't done it for the last couple of years because of the pandemic, is my practice was always to go out and read in public schools in Birmingham and actually Mm -hmm. to spend time on Law Day with younger kids. I miss that a lot. And something we've talked about a lot on the podcast is the importance of civic education. Um, And since that's something that I plan on devoting a lot of time to this year with elections upcoming and thinking about how important it is for people who, as you say, Kim, aren't lawyers to understand the rule of law, to really understand their rights and their responsibilities. My hope is that Law Day just gives us a moment where we can sit back, think about why it matters, and each of us can figure out what we can do in what's going to be a very important year. I, I know we always say that every election, you know, that's coming down the pike is the most important election ever. And in some ways, I think that's true, right? Every election is important because it's the election that will determine the course of the next few years of our lives. This one is particularly important. Law Day is a great time to recommit to um, helping to enhance those values in American society. What about you, Barb? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Law Day also. And public education, I think, is so critically important. Uh, Like you, Joyce, the pandemic has... uh, uh, 
stifled my efforts a little bit. But before the pandemic, uh, I was a regular speaker in Ann Arbor Public Schools. They did a program, which is wonderful, well-organized by our County Bar Association to send lawyers into public schools. Um, and each grade had a different program and they would give us a PowerPoint to use in the class. So, you know, it might be that one grade and they'd have great appropriate materials would be studying the First Amendment. Another grade would be studying the Fourth Amendment or um, the Sixth Amendment. And it was wonderful. We would talk to the kids. We'd have a few high-level slides to talk to them about the main concepts and then do Q&A. And they were super interested, super engaged. And I think it's so important for everybody to understand the role, the important role that law plays in everybody's life. What about you, Jill? You're an old ABA um, executive director. What uh, what does Law Day mean to you? Barb, can I just jump in? I, I hate to cut Jill off, but I just have to say you haven't lived until you've answered 10-year-old questions about what the Constitution means, right? <laughs> Their questions are piercing and tough, and they're far more likely to stump me than my law students. Oh, it's the greatest. <laughs> my, my favorite question that, that I guess it asked more than once is they love this idea. What if you have a twin and your twin committed a crime, but you got charged? Could you, you know? Could you twin, <laughs> blame your twin? And you, you ask, like, are you guys, do you have twins? And you know, no, they just think it's fascinating that, you know, you could blame your twin for your crime. I love that. Sorry, Jill. That's okay. What I wanted to point out was the ABA, of course, is the one who started the idea for Law Day. And in doing some research for this, I found out that the very person who started it was the president of the ABA, whose name was Charles Rhine. Charles Rhine was also a law classmate of Richard Nixon and was the lawyer for Rosemary Wow! So I know, yeah. So I have a very close connection to Charles Rhine, who founded the idea. It is such a great day to celebrate what the rule of law means in America. And I too miss the past things that I did to speak to students about the meaning of it. And I've coached a uh, mock trial team, which has been so much fun. It was my goddaughter's daughter's trial team. And I learned so much from how they approach the trial practice and presentation of evidence and thinking things through about what the law means that I feel like I learn as much from them as they learn from me. But it's been a fabulous thing. And every year there's a different theme. And last year it was the rule of law. Um, It's also been, they've talked about um, this year, it's the Constitution in times of change, which is supposed to emphasize that we have set up a system of government under the Constitution, but we've also set up ways and mechanisms to change it. And so it sort of opens up that idea of how do we interpret the Constitution as a living document? Because that's what this is. It shows it as a dynamic document. And that is something that we've often talked about with how the Supreme Court analyzes, whether it's the uh, con- you know totally textual view of the, the uh, Constitution. And so I think it's been a really interesting thing that we need to make sure that people celebrate every year. Um, It's also, of course, today is actually Earth Day, so I have to put in a good word for Earth Day and how we need to protect the environment and take action on that. And I I also was very good friends with the founder, one of the founders of Earth Day, uh, Congressman Pete McCloskey. So that goes back a long way. 
Yes, Earth Day is important too. And just a reminder that Law Day is not just for lawyers, it's for everybody. So to find out more about it or for ways that you can get involved, you can go to lawday.org or click the link in our show notes. So Barb and I were both flying home from separate trips on Monday when midair, I saw the announcement that a federal district judge in Florida had entered an order ending the mask mandate on uh, transportation, on on planes and and trains and subways. And she did so not just for the plaintiffs in her case, but she did it nationwide. You know, on my flight, people stayed masked. There was a little bit of surprise and people weren't quite sure what to do. But Barb, I think you flew home a little bit later um, than I did and you had a different experience. Can you talk with us about that and explain what the issue was in the Florida case? Yeah, so somewhere um, at 30,000 feet between Detroit and Minneapolis, um, a member of the flight crew came on and said, um, TSA has just ended its mask mandate Masking on flights is now optional. You may remove your mask if you would like to. And about half the plane erupted in cheers and ripped off their masks. And the other half uh, booed boisterously. I'll let you guess which side I was on. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that was what happened following this judge's decision. I question the judgment of announcing this mid-flight when people have passionate feelings yeah. about these things. Uh, but nonetheless, that happened. And then um, when I landed at the airport, I noticed that many people were not wearing masks anymore. So, um, you know, interesting interesting times and interesting views how people choose to, to, to wear masks. Um, but the decision in the Florida case was to strike down a rule that was made by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, And the CDC had entered this masking uh, rule pursuant to its powers. Um, It has the powers to um, authorize regulations necessary to prevent the spread of communicable diseases between states. And so in carrying out that function, it had enacted this masking rule that said in public transportation, uh, masking was mandatory. Um, What the judge ruled in that case is that CDC had exceeded its statutory authority. So because Congress is the branch of government that has legislative power, the one to make the laws, um, they're the only ones that couldn't do unless they delegate that authority specifically to administrative agencies. And the idea is that Congress has the ability to draw big rules, but when it comes to um, the fine-tuning of rules, it really needs to be more nimble than that. And to pass big laws in Congress, it just isn't uh, doesn't move quickly enough to be able to respond to the needs in various areas. And so the CDC has this authority delegated to protect the spread of communicable diseases from one state to another. Um, but what the judge found there is that the CDC exceeded its 
uh, statutory authority, which says that the CDC may do a number of things, including inspect and defumigate and disinfect and other things. Um, and the word she focused on was sanitation. And that was the word that the CDC had relied upon to require masks. And the judge said, you know, I'm one of these textualists. I'm going to look at the plain language. I look in the dictionary and sanitation says removal of garbage and cleaning. It doesn't say anything about masks. So no masks. You can't, you can't do that. CDC, you've exceeded your authority. She also said that they failed to provide with the procedural rules about the notice and comment period, which is normal that they post it, receive comment before they enact a rule to make sure that they're hearing from all the important stakeholders. But there's an exception when there's an emergency and they had operated under that provision. So the judge said no. And, you know, really to me, the key issue here isn't whether you're for masks or against masks, but who gets to decide that? And it seems to me that based on this delegation of authority, and it's only as good as what Congress gave them, but it is the CDC that has the the letter of this authority and the spirit of this authority. The CDC is a group of career experts designed to look at these matters objectively. Um, They don't change their jobs based on who's in power politically. They make their decisions based on what they think is in the best interest of health. And they've enacted that that mask mandate for a judge to come in and, and second guess. And, you know, I've said this before, when it comes to textualism, I think that you can use a dictionary to almost always justify whatever end result you want to reverse engineer a result. You know, if, if you ever look at the um, seven times 13 equals 28 Abbott and Costello routine, you know, no, no matter how they do it, they can prove that seven times 13 equals 28 when you know in your heart that just can't be right. But somehow they pull it off by using these numbers. Um, when I, you read this opinion, I, I get the same uh, feeling that this is the Abbott and Costello seven times 13 equals 28 routine. So, um, you know, the question is whether that will stick on appeal. You know, Barb, I think that's the most succinct criticism of textualism that I've ever heard. (laughs) Um, This judge is a textualist. She uh, came on the bench after spending time in the Federalist Society in law school and clerking for conservative judges, including Bill Pryor, the chief judge of the 11th Circuit, and Clarence Thomas. And there was a lot of controversy, both about her and her background and about her ruling. Kim, do you think that the criticism was warranted? Well, I think it depends on what you think about what Barb just said, that very important point about who has the power to implement nationwide policy. Generally speaking, this is not something that trial level judges are in place to do. They are meant to oversee cases at the trial level that come before them in their local jurisdictions. Now, those duties do include acting on things like preliminary injunction requests. Um, And the reason that people will seek a preliminary injunction in a case at the trial level is to sort of hold in place the status quo while an issue of law, a novel issue of law, is decided by the appellate courts and makes its way up the appellate chain. And that's basically to keep harm from being done. And usually, generally speaking, such injunctions apply to the parties in the case. But in this case, the order by Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel, who is based in Tampa, Florida, it pro- it prohibits anyone, any TSA official, anybody, anybody in any transportation authority from implementing this policy in the meantime. So it amounts to a nationwide ban. Now, that happened historically on a very rare occasion. 
But recently that's been happening more and more frequently where you have these trial level judges implementing nationwide bans uh, in a way that wasn't meant to be their jobs. As Joyce said, she spent some time clerking for some conservative judges and justices. Um, She did practice in private practice for a little while, but she still received a not qualified rating from the American Bar Association uh, before she was confirmed to that post. Among other reasons that the ABA cited is that the only two cases she'd ever tried to verdict uh, were when she was a law school intern. Um, And so, as Barb said, you have people at the CDC, experts, their job is to understand and implement rules that keep everyone in America safe. And then you have one judge who happened to have been rated uh, not qualified by the ABA, overriding their decision and making the call to end this mask mandate unilaterally in a way that's going to make it extraordinarily difficult, regardless of what the legal findings are at the end to re-implement. You saw the way people reacted in planes and in airports. Putting that toothpaste back in the tube is going to be really, really hard. So it really makes you have to think about where this power is allotted and whether that's right. I'll leave that to our listeners to make that decision for themselves. You know, I think it's really fair to point out that this judge got essentially got an unqualified rating when the ABA vetted her. That was based on her lack of experience as a lawyer that made her sufficiently experienced to become a judge. And I think it's important to say that that's not an indictment of her personally. She was obviously a very good student. She clerked for two judges. She was a Supreme Court justice. Not very many people do that. So it's not to say, you know, that this is someone who was stupid or or who didn't belong Um, uh, in that fairly high level of the legal world. It's simply to say that the qualification wasn't there in terms of experience. The notion that you can become a trial judge without having, as a bar-certified lawyer, tried even a single case to completion. She had not even been the second chair on a case. And that, I think, is, is what was so shocking to people. And Kim, I like the point that you made and that Barb made, that when we're talking about who decides these issues, that's sort of a marker for the sort of judgment that she exercised. So, Jill, I think I'll throw the appellate question to you because the case now hinges on what power the CDC has to exercise in a crisis. What happens going forward? And given Judge Mazel's ruling, it seemed fairly preordained to me at the time that DOJ would have to appeal. They dragged their feet a little bit. What strategic choices have they made? It's really interesting. And, of course, everything that Barb and Kim said is completely true particularly about who decides these issues, whether it's the experts at the CDC based on medical information and the health risk to our country, or whether it's a judge who has no such experience, is really the fundamental issue. Um, And they're also correct in pointing out the political nature of this right now and how hard it will be for this to be undone so that I'm sure that one of the things that the administration considered in deciding whether to appeal was the political impact. If we appeal and win and the mandate is put back in place, a lot of people are going to be unhappy because they were thrilled that it was removed. 
And it's harder to do that than to say, look, there's a health risk and you have to stay there. So they had to have weighed that. But I think what they were really doing was weighing what are the legal consequences? What is the best way to decide the full scope of the powers of the CDC? And so there was some argument that if it was appealed and lost, it meant that there'd be a higher court decision saying that the CDC didn't have this power and that that could affect what happens going forward. It's important to note that in this case, the uh, mandate was set to expire anyway. And this almost became moot before it was actually brought because it was going to expire. And then there was a request that it just be continued to May 3rd, which is about to expire before this is going to ever be heard in an appellate court or briefed in an appellate court. And so then you get into the question of, well, if we don't do it, we're letting stand a decision of a district court that's very negative and that could be used as a, a grounds for arguing in future cases, in a future pandemic or in a resurgence of COVID. And that's bad. On the other hand, if we let it get appealed and we lose, then we have a higher court decision saying bad things. To me, it doesn't really matter whether it's a district court or a court of appeals that makes the decision. It's taking away the power of the CDC. And so I personally, on a philosophical basis, would have said, yes, it needs to be appealed because there needs to be confirmation of the power of the CDC. There was also some arguments being made about the mootness issue and whether the Department of Justice was weighing if it brought the appeal and then the case became moot, it would almost, it could be argued that under a case called Munsinger, Munsingware, that it would be vacated. It would be voided and nullified and that there'd be no uh, precedential value to it. Um, I don't think that's why they made a decision because in the circumstances that the party who's appealing moots the issue by letting it expire, they don't have any protection of vacating the lower court decision. So I don't think that really played a role. In I just it. have to say, I love it when my sisters-in-law nerd out and talking about mootness and Munsingware and stuff, like just the, the lawyer nerd in me just rejoices. Well, we all got a little bit nerdy this week, I, I think. And Jill's assessment of Munsingware, I think, is dead on the money. You know, it's there's this notion that DOJ would not take such a risky position, which I, I think that was what the delay was about. They were trying to figure out what are we going to do in a bad situation? We've got bad law in the district court. We don't want bad law from a court of appeals that might end up getting cited in, in other circuits. And then I'll just put the final cherry on top here and say this is happening in the 11th Circuit, which is a very conservative circuit, very likely that we'll see more textualists and judges uh, who believe in dismantling the nanny state on the 11th Circuit panel, the three-judge panel that will hear the appeal if it gets that far. So stay tuned on this one. If you believe that the CDC should be able to protect us in future crises, uh, this may be a rocky road. Numerous cases have been filed to remove Republican candidates from primary ballots. Two have gotten the most attention. One was against Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina and one against Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. 
These actions are based on the disqualification clause of our Constitution, which is set forth in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And I want to read the relevant language because I, I want our audience to have that in mind as we proceed with our discussion. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says, No person shall be a representative in Congress who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. The Cawthorn case was dismissed and is now on expedited appeal to the Fourth Circuit. It's going to be argued May 3rd. But the case to remove Green from the ballot was allowed to proceed. And as we record this episode, she is testifying under oath before a Georgia administrative judge who will make a recommendation on an outcome to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffsenberger. And depending on that recommendation, uh, the Secretary of State will decide whether she stays on the ballot. And as we've talked about before, that's a very important decision because it does mean who we can vote for or not vote for. But let, let's start with understanding how these two conflicting decisions came down. And Barb, tell us what the judges in Green and Cawthorn cases said that led to the different outcomes. Yeah, well, we'll start with Cawthorn because that one came first. There was a judge in that case who said that the 14th Amendment's prohibition, the one that you just read about uh, how a person is disqualified from running for Congress if they have engaged in an insurrection, is limited to people who fought in the Civil War, that an 1872 statute called the Civil War Amnesty Act limits the 14th Amendment uh, to those kinds of situations. Now, I think a fair argument is a statute can't change the meaning of the Constitution. So if you're a textualist, you ought to care about the language of the 14th Amendment, right? <laughs> so um, need to see it both ways. So that case was dismissed. It is now on an expedited appeal to the Fourth Circuit. That's going to be argued on May 3rd. So we'll see how that one comes out. But in the meantime, there's kind of a similar challenge to Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia. And they... Um, a, a, a group of uh, citizens of Georgia in, in an organization um, filed a challenge to her with the Georgia Secretary of State. That is Brad Raffensperger, uh, who, of course, uh, is a, a familiar name for all of us following uh, the 2020 presidential election. He's the person that Donald Trump tried to shake down for 11,000 more votes. Um, he will ultimately decide. But Marjorie Taylor Greene herself filed a lawsuit to try to stop that effort before the Georgia Secretary of State for removing her from the ballot for engaging in insurrection. And to date, the judge in that case rejected her argument. Now you say, what about the, why is this inconsistent with the, the judge in North Carolina? Well, they're different judges. They're both U.S. District Court judges. They are both of equal power, but they're out of different jurisdictions. So one ruling is not binding on another. They would have to go up to their circuit level and perhaps ultimately the Supreme Court to get a consistent ruling on this. But what the judge said there is that um, there are some really important uh, constitutional interests at stake, and um, there is some question here as to what does it take to engage in insurrection. And so it's important that we find out what the facts are before we dismiss the case. It may very well be that the plaintiffs are unable to demonstrate that she engaged in insurrection. And it's also really unclear. I think it's fascinating just from a legal procedure perspective uh, to try to get some clarity on how um, the process works in these cases. 
do you have to be convicted of a crime of insurrection? Can it just be a finding by the secretary of state of, of your state, like Georgia? Does Congress itself have to make this finding? So we don't know. And so the judge here has said this is an opportunity to flesh out the law um, and to make factual findings. So the case shall proceed, which is what brought Marjorie Taylor Greene to the witness stand today. And we're going to get into those facts and into the legal process. And I'm going to turn to you, Joyce, first to talk about the definition of engaging in an insurrection and whether inciting an insurrection, because there is no evidence that she entered while well, she was in the Capitol to do her job, uh, but she didn't enter with the uh, violent protesters. So is any prior action of hers inciting them to enter? Would that count as engaging in an insurrection within the language of the 14th Amendment? So that, I think, is, is the key question and, and one of the questions that'll have to be decided in this hearing. I'm going to just skip a little bit ahead and say, I don't believe that she's going to be disqualified from running in Georgia. And my, my belief is based is grounded more in the politics than in the law of the situation. Because after this hearing, Judge makes his decision. It goes to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, for a final decision. I sort of doubt he has it in him to go mano y mano with Trump a second time. But even if he does, it can be appealed into the Georgia state courts. And I just, I just don't see that process working out in a way that removes her from the ballot. That said, though, this question about her participation in the insurrection is an interesting one because Section 3, and there's a little bit more language at the end of it, it says, to be disqualified, she has to have either engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. The, eraf, the, the thereof at the end of that phrase is the United States Constitution. And so you can contemplate really a, a pretty expansive set of facts that would justify this sort of a disqualification. It will all come down to the specific facts that the lawyers for the Georgia voters are able to put into evidence uh, and what the judge believes they establish. Because insurrection involves an element of, of violence, and there was a lot of quibbling about that. Unfortunately, we're taping while the hearing is still ongoing, but most of what I heard from Marjorie Taylor Greene this morning was the lawyers offering evidence that might have suggested that she was interested in, 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 at a minimum, blocking Congress from certifying the election. And she had one phrase down pat. She kept saying, I don't recall. And she said it over and over again in a way that would have made Jeff Sessions proud at his confirmation hearing when our listeners will yeah. recall he didn't remember anything. Neither did she, and, and she wouldn't take responsibility for anything on her social media. She said, I don't have any idea who did that. Um, items on her calendar, she had no idea how they got there. So whether or not, and it sort of looked to me like perhaps she was being set up for a, a vicious sort of a, a comeuppance at the end where maybe the lawyer had the receipts. We'll have to see how that weighs out. But ultimately, I think there's going to be a lot of legal noodling over the specific language and the law. And it, it may even come down to things like, who's an enemy of the Constitution? If this comes down to not her active engagement in insurrection, but giving aid or comfort to enemies of the Constitution, who qualifies? So lots of unsolved legal territory there. There is, and part of the argument I heard by her lawyer was that the part about aid to the 
uh, insurrection is only for foreign um, enemies of the state so that it wouldn't count because these were Americans. And that was one that sort of took my breath away. Um, but as you said, we're going to have to wait to see what the outcome of that case is, and we'll see how far it goes. So, Kim, let's go to a different sort of aspect of this, which is the First Amendment. And we've talked about the fine line between free speech and criminal acts. And do you think there's a First Amendment argument here, or is there any issue based on congressional immunity based on the speech and debate clause? So before I get to that, I want to start by saying we already established that this rule came out of the Civil War. Um, So if they're claiming that it's only foreign, only applies to foreign people, um, I have a history book for them to read. But just moving on from that. That would be critical Um, race theory. No, there is. You're so woke. You're so woke. (laughs) (laughs) You caught me, Barb. So, yeah, in terms of the First Amendment or the speech and debate clause, or any of the defenses that Marjorie Taylor Greene's lawyers uh, hinted that they would be lodging uh, affirmative defenses to this. I I don't think any of them matter. Our listeners know that just as there is no First Amendment right to yell fire in a theater, there's no First Amendment right to um, incite or participate in an insurrection. Um, That is also not protected by the speech and debate clause of the Constitution. But I think I agree with the analysis of all of you so far that I don't think it's going to get there. I think the reason is, in this case, it is up to, normally, it's often up the burden is on the candidate to prove that they did not engage in this behavior that would disqualify them. In this case, under the laws of of Georgia that we've laid out, it is up to the challengers to prove that she did. And I think that's going to be the hurdle. I don't even think they're going to get to these First Amendment arguments um, or other constitutional arguments because it's going to be very difficult for them functionally, both um, legally and politically, as Joyce very well pointed out, um, to get to that. I mean, this is, as the judge said before, this is a complicated set of issues that involve state rules, that involve the Constitution, that involve things that have not been considered since the Civil War. And I think the likelihood that a judge is going to step in and say, you know what, I'm going to, for the first time ever, decide, boom, this is what bumps someone off of a ballot. I think that is really unlikely, uh, especially since we have, it's not precedent, but we have the fact that the judge in the Cawthorn case didn't do that either. So I think it's going to be a not it situation where the judges are not going to be the ones to step uh, to step on this because it could be both a legal and political landmine. And also, as it gets appealed, time's going to run out. And I don't think that there's enough time, even if it is determined that this is a viable political, um, viable legal argument. There's just not enough time to get her off the ballot before the election. So I don't think that's going to work. Before I get to my next question about the law and the basic problem with the 14th Amendment not being self-enforcing, does anybody want to talk about what evidence there is that either Cawthorn or Marjorie Taylor Greene engaged in the conduct that would be covered by the 14th Amendment? Is there any evidence that they actually 
did the incitement, and let's include incitement in that because I think as yeah. it, it is included. Well, what springs to mind, front of mind, is that she held the meeting before the January 6th uh, insurrection uh, in which she talked about ways that Republicans met and had a valuable meeting on how to stop Joe Biden from stealing the election. She also um, said or tweeted, the facts are running together on me, about a 1776 moment, uh, which seemed to have the implication that violence would happen in order to uh, essentially engage in a revolution. Um, those are among the factoids that lead in favor to that finding. I don't know what other what other facts um, others remember. I just say there are also some tweets with Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, you know, and, and, and I think a fair question is how direct does this have to be to engage in insurrection? She says things like, we're going to flood the Capitol. Yeah. Um, we can't let Joe Biden steal this right. election. Uh, we hope we can do so peacefully. Um, but if not, we need to be prepared to do what it takes to make sure that uh, our, our, our election is not stolen. So is that enough to engage in insurrection? I don't know. You know, that's the problem here. And Jill, I know this is where you're headed, but the voters, the lawyers for the voters, weren't able to engage in any discovery here. So in part, they're operating just based on the public record. But there are legitimate First Amendment concerns here, although when she was testifying, at least the part I heard, uh, Representative uh, Green wanted to characterize it as her First Amendment right to speech. I think she was really talking about the First Amendment right to assemble. And Americans do have a right to assemble and protest. And I think we have to be very careful here about not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. What that maybe points to is a little bit of, you know, giddy up Justice Department. But part of the accountability mechanism here is inherently going to be what the voters do when they go to the polls this fall, as opposed to what any court does or what DOJ does. Totally agree. And one of the arguments that I heard, by the way, was that, as you mentioned earlier, she's been saying, well, I have no idea how that got on my Twitter account. Could have been somebody who manages my account. But there are also videos of her. And that's her speaking. So she can't evade responsibility for what she said. But let's let's go back. You know what she kept saying, though? She kept saying, well, that's from a CNN story, and CNN lies about me all the time. <laughs> and ultimately, I feel like under cross-examination, she would just melt like a stick of butter. I mean, she really, she was getting away with a good bit this morning. The cross-examination wasn't pressing or grueling. She's got some real problems yeah. here, whether they come out in this proceeding or not. Right. So, but that takes us back to this idea about the amendment isn't self-enforcing. And there was an illegal arguments being made that only Congress or a state after a DOJ indictment can enforce the 14th Amendment. So that these cases, this particular one brought by voters, can't stand. And that would be important not just for Green and Cawthorn, but for the half dozen other cases that are pending and for future cases including against possibly President Trump. Um, Joyce, do you have an opinion on that? You know, I read the piece in the New York Times that was advocating for this point of view. And the argument runs something like this. The 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 in the wake of the Civil War, and Section 3 was intended to disqualify a lot of former Confederates from holding certain types of public office. 
So the argument that's made by two professors in the Times is that although there's not a lot of legal precedent in this area, there is a case called Griffin's case, and it involves a defendant in a criminal case after the Civil War, and he's convicted, and he challenges his conviction. And here's his argument. The judge in my case had previously been a supporter of the Confederate government. He'd taken an oath and then become a Confederate. And so he's disqualified from being a state court judge by virtue of that. And and my conviction is no good. It needs to be tossed out. Interestingly enough, it was Chief Justice Salmon Chase who heard that appeal, not as a Supreme Court case, but as this sort of an administrative function. And he ruled that the judge wasn't disqualified because legislation by Congress is necessary, he said, to give effect to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And only Congress can enact that legislation. And of course, Congress has never done that. So the point that these two academics were making here is that there's no way to make a finding that Marjorie Taylor Greene or anyone else participated in an insurrection and is disqualified. It's a very interesting argument, but I'm just not certain that it's correct. It's certainly something that would be litigated vigorously. And just, you know, without spending a lot of time thinking about it, it seems to me that candidates qualify under state law, right? We don't have one national election. We have a series of state elections. Candidates qualify to be on the ballot in their state under state law. And the states have created procedures for determining whether a candidate is qualified to be on the ballot. So I think that there's a very good argument that this is a power that's reserved to the states, that they are entitled to decide who can appear on their ballots, and that a procedure like what we're seeing in Georgia or the one in North Carolina with Madison Cawthorn is the right way to approach this. But let me just be clear, there's very little law here, and it's not at all certain what would happen. So in the very unlikely event that Green is removed from the ballot and she appeals the removal on this particular ground, we may get to find out what Griffin's case means and what it doesn't mean, but it's not a Supreme Court precedent. Like Barb started out by saying, one of the most interesting questions here is procedurally how this works. And I'm just not sure we're going to find out, but um, I hope we will. I, I hope so. And I, I hope you're wrong because your theory about the state power would mean that the constitutional provision has no meaning, that the federal government, that the constitutional framers were not able to say you cannot be in office if you do this one thing. This is one disqualification. In the same way they say how old yeah. you have to be to run for senator. The states can't change the, the rules of running for president, for I, example. So I think it's a more finely tuned argument about whether or not Section 3 of the 14th Amendment requires that only the federal government create a mechanism or whether the states, too, could have some sort of mechanism for determining uh, whether someone had participated in an insurrection. Well, after more than two years of the COVID pandemic, we're starting to see large law firms and other employers requiring their attorneys and their employees to come back to work in person. In March, the law firm of Kirkland & Ellis, for example, 
started requiring all employees to be back in the office on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So I guess they're easing back into things and experimenting with what might work in the future. Um, and, you know, there's certain workplaces that need to have employees together to even function and other places that work pretty well remotely. And I know for some people, the idea of returning to the office feels like going backward and reversing some of the progress that technology has brought to work. Um, and for others, it's a, a welcome return to normal. So I'm curious about your thoughts about whether law firms or other employees need to work in person to achieve their missions, or if instead this isn't a moment to kind of reimagine work and think about what it could look like to make people you know, as productive as possible, achieve the mission of the workplace, um, and yet give people a better work-life balance. I don't know. you have any thoughts about that, Jill? I do. And I have mixed feelings about it because I'm one of those people who really likes to be with other people, to share ideas randomly, not through a planned meeting or through a scheduled conversation, but to sit down at lunch and just talk about what are you working on. And it's amazing how much you can learn from that that will help you. Um, But I also see some of the advantages of not being in the office every day, the amount of time it takes to commute, which for me was always a nightmare and a hassle and a waste of time. And yes, I did some work in commuting when I took the train, but it's not the most efficient way to do your work. So it takes twice as long as it would have taken if I was actually just sitting at my desk doing it. Um, I know for all of us where um, I haven't been in the studio for, well, since March of 20, I no longer have to spend the time commuting to the studio. I don't have to have be there a half hour before the top of the hour, even though I'm scheduled for the D block and won't be on at the top of the hour. Well, it might change, they say, so you have to be here and you have to be there a half hour earlier than the top of the hour for hair and makeup. I also know from the NBC's point of view, think of how much money they're saving. They aren't sending a car to pick me up and take me there. They aren't paying for hair and makeup. They aren't paying a cameraman or lighting or sound. I do it all by myself. And so I think economically, there's going to be a real reason not to have us go back to the studio. And I'm sure the same is true for other employers. Um, a friend of mine who runs a, a, a management consulting firm, um, financial management, said, we've learned that we can do everything on Zoom and we can save on the rent. We don't need to have an office space anymore. We'll get somewhere for a conference room to have conferences with clients, but we don't need all that office space. We're going to save a lot of money. So I I think that there's a real reason for all workplaces, not just law firms, but for all workplaces to start looking at what are the advantages of this and to finding ways that you can do the kind of team building and mentoring um, that happen in a workplace without being there five days a week? Um, yeah, I too am, uh, have mixed feelings about it based on my own experience. I do think, I, I think the way that you asked the question, Barb, is can we reimagine what our workplaces look like? I think that's where it, it, it really, um, that's really where it's at. And it could look like limited, um, Meetings. So if you have a team 
a, a law firm or other employer that has maybe 40 people. Maybe instead of having a space that can hold 40 people, you have a space that can hold 20 people or 15. And so when people need to go in, when they need to have those face-to-face meetings, they can. When they need to conduct depositions, they can. When they need to do what they want, but they can also shrink the amount of space that they had to Jill's point, maybe save some point, uh, some money in terms of the, the physical office space while still giving that option for that face-to-face time that sometimes you will need to have while at the same time appreciating the flexibility that this, uh, what we've learned over the last two years has given us. I will say that I do get very isolated. I'm a person who has anxieties. So on the one hand, it was very scary for a while to go out into the world and to talk to other people. But at the same time, I also found that that isolation was hard when I wasn't seeing people regularly and talking to them face-to-face at the same time, my productivity has been so much greater. I mean, one of the reasons I'm able to do this podcast is because I'm able to, as soon as I file the story right at my home desk, I can pull out my equipment and start up a podcast and talk to you. I can pull out my other equipment and host uh, an NPR show like I did today. I can put the camera on my on my computer and do an MSNBC hit. I have been going back in the studio on occasion. Uh, in the past couple of months, but I did notice, you know, for one show that I was on TV for 15 minutes on set, it was great being on set with people. It took a total of two hours out of my day to do my own makeup, commute, because they're still not doing makeup in the studio, commute all the way there, wait for your, your, your hit to come up, get back in the car, commute all the way back. And that's two hours out of the day. I could have hosted a whole show on top of doing something else. And so it really does cut down on productivity. So I think each law firm should really, each employer regardless of where you work, should really look at the needs of their employees and use this as an opportunity to say, we're going to craft this to hit that right balance between productivity, work-life balance, saving some money, and giving the opportunity to have the face time when you need it. Kim, I think what you're saying is exactly right. Um, I'm going to be the glass half full person here, and I, I usually am the glass half full person. I think the fact that we do have these conflicts about the value of what we've, you know, the way we've been forced to work during the pandemic as opposed to the traditional thing actually suggests that we're at a moment of evolution. And I think that there's so much opportunity for people to work in a smarter way and a better way. And and frankly, Barb, you were the one that shared with us an article that talked about how the traditional workplace and the nine-to-five day was structured around the notion of the nuclear family, a traditional family with a man who had a wife at home to prepare his meals and iron his clothing. And, you know, for me as a working mom with four kids— I would have loved to have had the flexibility to spend my lunch hour tossing something on for dinner, right? And I've done that throughout the pandemic. I'll throw something um, into the slow cooker or I'll pull stuff out to defrost. And it means that I'm much more efficient. I mean, I hate to say that it it lets me work more, but to be honest, it, it does. It means that I'm able to work smarter in a lot of ways. I can work harder, but I also have the time for some passion projects. And you know, there's a lot to be said for doing a conference call while you're watering your garden, this notion that we can um, multitask while we're doing things 
that I can drink coffee outside with my chickens and let my students see my chickens running around while we're doing Zoom office hours. It certainly has made my life richer and a lot more pleasant. And what I'm hoping is that, you know, law firms, law schools, whoever we are, that we can craft these strategies that that let us hang on to the good stuff about this, but also let us return to seeing people in person, which I've missed so desperately so, so many times. And can I just add, I was, I should have said that too uh, before. It's not just allows me to work better and do more work, but it allows better work-life balance. So at the end of the day, I go up and, uh, you know, into the kitchen and my husband and I prepare dinner together. We're able to sit down um, with each other or, or with my stepchildren if they're here and have a conversation with each other over the dinner table in a way that if we were all commuting and exhausted and needed to unwind when we got home, that that would be so much harder. So certainly the, 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 the time that I'm able to spend with my family has increased immensely. And that is so important for um, a, a healthy, well-rounded people. So that has to be a part of the equation too. I'm glad you brought that yeah, up, Joyce. I think it's one of those deals where um, one size is not going to fit all. And that's why I think it's going to be really tricky for employers to get this right. Um, In addition to some of the things that you've mentioned, I think one thing I've been reading about also is that people who are returning to the office are finding that the cost of commuting has increased tremendously with inflation, gas and parking and dry cleaning and lunches out and those kinds of things. In addition um, to the time of commuting, which, you know, is is certainly time that could be spent on work or, or on self. Um, and then there's been the issue with, you know, parents with spotty childcare during COVID, uh, or p- parents who need to care for elderly, uh, elderly parents of their own, uh, you know, people with aging parents. And so, as we have all these other responsibilities, it sure is easier when you can kind of work around those things, and uh, you know, go to. I, I I too feel like I'm working all the time, you know, from the minute I get up to before I go to bed. But in the trade-off is in the middle of the day, you get to do things that maybe you have to do because of other responsibilities. So I think from the worker perspective, there are a lot of advantages. But I think we also have to think about from the employer perspective and the national perspective, I and mean, we need our country to be productive and. Companies, you know, all all businesses are in the same business. That's the business of making money. Um, You know, whatever it is they make, at the end of the day, they're in the business making money. And um, maybe it makes more money to have people out uh, and more productive working from home. But I also think that there are some businesses that require or benefit from having people together to collaborate. Um, Joyce, our our friend Tom Perez used to say that you got to make house calls. In his job when he was the um, assistant attorney general for civil rights, later secretary of labor and later head of the Democratic Party, um, you know, just the importance of a personal visit and being able, as Jill talked about, you know, sit around a table and collaborate with people. There's a lot of value that comes from that. And I think sometimes you don't quite get that through the Zoom, um, especially if you don't know people, if you're new to an organization or young people, recent graduates, you know, how do they learn some of those, you know, you know the, the official stuff they'll get the training on, but, you know, all the side things about how work gets done and how relationships are built and all that sort of stuff. I think there is a need for some um, part of the organization to work together, but I think different organizations have different needs and I think different people within organizations have different needs. So I think that, you know, flexibility here is going to be really important. And I think the employers who have that vision are going to be the ones who win because workers, especially younger workers are demanding, you know, in law firms, um, they, you know, workers, uh, have demands about portability in addition to salary. And so I think the employers who get this right are going to be the winners in all of this. 
You know, I think that makes sense. But one thing that that we should acknowledge is that we are not necessarily out of the woods on this pandemic. And with climate change, there may be future ones. So keeping the opportunity to be nimble is really important. And I want to make one point that you just mentioned, Barb, which is the being together and collaborating. I learned the value of that when I was general counsel of the Army. The general officer's mess does not have very many small tables for two or four people. It has a giant table. And the idea is you come in and you sit down next to whoever is sitting there. And it fosters the kind of dialogue across very different perspectives. And it has been, it was a very enriching experience, a great way to learn and get new ideas. And so I, I do see the value of being there sometime and just having those random experiences that you can't get when you're staying at home. But I see a lot of advantages to the time saved and the efficiency of being home. Yeah. So, you know, maybe this just let those variants calm down first. <laughs> you know, so maybe it's this Tuesday, Wednesday, saying. Thursday thing, or maybe your practice group meets on Tuesdays and a different one meets on Wednesdays. You know, I also want to acknowledge all the workers who did not have the benefits that we all had of being able to do our work seamlessly um, online. In fact, you know, in many ways, our lives got easier by being able to do online. You know, plenty of people are out there who are the frontline workers who are, you know, serving food, working in retail, public transportation, 100%. all those kind of things, who don't have the privilege of having this conversation. So um, just a note of appreciation for them. Or who don't have access to the mm-hmm. internet the yep. way that note we do. A note of appreciation for, for all those folks who stayed on the job and made sure the rest of us got what we needed. So I don't know about y'all, but my favorite part of each podcast is when we answer listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we try to answer as many of your questions as we can. So our first question this week comes from Margareta. The question is, how difficult would it be to investigate and prosecute the wife of a U.S. Supreme Court justice? Are there institutional barriers? I think I might know who Margareta is talking about, but if the spouse of a SCOTUS justice committed a crime, are there institutional barriers? Who wants to answer that? Well, I'll take a start at it. Um, You know, I think the answer is no. Let's just say that... um the husband of, you know, one of our uh, women who's on the bench decides that the family's running a little bit low on cash and walks down the street and robs the neighborhood bank. Not immune from prosecution. Absolutely no reason that he shouldn't be investigated just like anyone else who commits the crime. I suspect in the real world there are some political sensitivities, but not inappropriate ones. And and the reason is prosecutors don't want to insert themselves into the public debate in a way that has an influence that unbalances our three branches of, of government sort of system. So, for instance, if you're investigating a senator because you believe he's been involved in a bribery scheme, you're going to be very certain that the evidence that you have amounts to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. 
I think that there might be a little bit of that with the spouse um, of an elected official. But honestly, we should use that same sort of care in every prosecution that we undertake. And I don't think the spouse of a Supreme Court justice, if they're involved in criminal activity, deserves any special kind of protection. Jill, did you have anything to add? No, I would have given the same answer. I guess I would say I would say the same is true for anybody, including a member of the, any administration, including the president, that when they commit a crime, they should not be above the law. And so the same would be true for a Supreme Court justice, as well as for the spouse of a Supreme Court justice. We need to go relitigate that OLC memo that forbids prosecuting a sitting president at some point. Bad decision, bad, bad opinion. It's not a decision, it's an opinion, and it should not be guiding anybody. All right. Our next question comes from J.K. Boston, who asks, what happens in the following scenario? One of the nine justices recuses her or himself from a case, and the decision is split amongst the remaining eight justices. I'll give a start to this. Absolute chaos <laughs> happens, Jay. It Mayhem. No, that's not actually what happens. I'm kidding. Um, so what happens anytime there is a tie? at the U.S. Supreme Court, whether it's because of a recusal or whether we've had several situations where there were an even number of justices on the bench due to a vacancy, what happens is that case, uh, essentially the lower court appellate decision is upheld, but not for its precedential value. So when the U.S. Supreme Court makes a ruling, that ruling is binding on everyone. When the U.S. Supreme Court is unable to make a ruling or chooses not to take up uh, a case from one of the lower courts, the result of that case stands. That's the end of that appeal, but it does not apply to everyone else in the country. So another challenge can come along based on the same issue, and the Supreme Court can rule on it again in the future. And our final question comes from Karen Averill, who asks, can Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow file a defamation lawsuit against her accuser and maybe put a stop to the ridiculous accusations of grooming. We're going to go to our Michigan expert, Barb McQuaid. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, so Senator McMorrow got a lot of attention on social media with her really powerful uh, rebuttal to this fundraising email that a Michigan state senator sent out. Um, and you know, it was a fundraising email asking for money, talking about um, you know how Democrats are out there making it harder for parents to influence what is taught in our schools. So you should send me money. And it said something like, these are the people we're up against. Uh, she said, quote, progressive social media trolls like Senator Mallory McMorrow, who are outraged they can't groom and sexualize kindergartners or that eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. Uh, and then when she identifies Senator oh, Mallory God. McMorrow, who is a Democrat from Royal Oak. And so ordinarily, I think you'd see, you know, parens D hyphen Royal Oak. It says D hyphen Snowflake. So that's um, uh, very quaint. Um, I think it's interesting, though. The question is, can she sue for defamation? A defamation lawsuit requires that you prove that a person made a false statement against you, that they knew it was false, and that they did so um, uh, in a way that has caused you harm. And so I think it could be difficult under this language because what she says, she didn't call her a uh, you know a predator or say that she's grooming kindergartners. She said she's outraged she can't um, uh, 
social media trolls like Mallory McMorrow are outraged they can't groom and sexualize kindergartners <laughs> or teach uh, them that, that eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where they say, I didn't actually call her that thing. I just said, she's unhappy that they can't be taught about these things. So uh, I think make, making proof here could be difficult. But certainly, you know, it's false. Certainly it's, um, she knows it's false. Did it harm her? I don't know, maybe within Republican quarters. But I think if anything, it was just something that gave her um, a really good opportunity to speak out just about how outrageous this is. And I thought one of the things about uh, Senator McMorrow that was especially powerful is she said, you know, why is she going after me of all people? Like, I, 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 I don't know her. Like, I haven't done anything to her. And she said, and it occurred to me, it's because I'm the, the straight, white, Christian, um, suburban mom. And so the way to get back at me is you can't, you know, paint me as some uh, enemy, but you can say I'm part of the, you know, the... Uh, the group that wants to um, eat and kill your children. So that's that's the way to to frame her. And uh, so I thought it was a powerful response. Can she sue for defamation? Maybe, but you know the standard that we hold public figures out to is so high of this idea of actual malice that I think there's a way to spin this as you know it was political speech about her viewpoint as opposed to calling her a name. So I think it's an uphill battle, but uh, you know certainly she could do it if she wanted to pursue it. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Wine-Banks, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. You can send your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. You can go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue t-shirt that we've been modeling on Twitter all week. And we want to thank our sponsors, HelloFresh, Policy Genius, Honey, Blue Land, and Function of Beauty. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. Sorry, I had to go blow my nose. Sorry. Too much information. <laughs> Why well, does like y'all were talking and it was like I I just needed to like run away for a second. Well, we're glad you're back. <laughs> you know there is the mute function on the uh, <laughs> on the uh, app, Kim. Have you not learned about muting in all the two years of Zoom? Didn't I? Didn't I? I thought I. You didn't need to run away. Okay, sorry. Oh, I'm Did you? <laughs> Did you hear me? No, blowing? no, no, no. Oh my god! I'm no, mortified. I'm just suggesting you didn't need to. Oh my god! To... <laughs> <laughs> I thought I did mute. <laughs> it's allergy season. You did mute. Trying. I have often found lately, also, that I maybe okay. I've spent too much time in the virtual world or listening to podcasts. I'll listen to something in real time and want to rewind and hear it again. And you can't do that. Right? <laughs> I did too. <laughs> Yeah, how do I listen to that again? Oh, it's, it's over. Or fast yeah. forward yeah. or double time. <laughs> make uh, make us speak two times faster. <laughs>